We're in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to go ahead and read the text to you this morning because the songs we're about to sing, they, they, they come from this song and they, they capture some of the thoughts we'll be speaking of this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 where we'll be reading together the first few verses together. I'll actually begin reading in chapter 8, verse 22, and then into chapter 9. Isaiah writes, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I hope that you will recall that two weeks ago we began an Advent series of sermons that we've simply entitled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And what we've been doing is looking at some of those Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Emmanuel, about the coming of the Messiah, the one born of the Virgin Mary who we saw last week would be called Emmanuel or God with us. And we began this series by looking at the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And then last Lord's Day, considered Isaiah chapter 7. You may remember King Ahaz and Isaiah's uh, message from God to King Ahaz. And I'm hoping that you're beginning to see a pattern develop in these stories. Um, and by way of introduction, I want, I want to kind of bring it to the surface because the pattern holds true even as we look together in Isaiah chapter 9. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. Of course, we have the... Uh, creation, everything God said was good. You have Adam and Eve, the uh, pinnacle of God's creative genius, created in the image of God, and then they sin and disobey, creating a backdrop of desolation, a backdrop of destruction for which God intervenes. God steps in and makes a, brings a promise of hope against that backdrop of desolation. But that promise of hope is going to come about in a very surprising way. The hope that God speaks of in Genesis chapter 3, the victory of a seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent will come by way of death, right? That's a very surprising methodology. Again, it's reminding us God's ways are not our ways. 
against that backdrop of desolation, here comes a word of hope, but it's a surprising word of hope. It's going to be executed in a very surprising way. The victory that the Messiah will win over the seed of the serpent will, in the process, cost him his life. The serpent will strike the heel of the Messiah, and he was going to die. But it's through that victory and hope would come. Isaiah chapter 7, the passage we looked at last Lord's Day. Again, think back. There was a backdrop of desolation, a backdrop of discouragement, a backdrop of hopelessness. Because it, it connects to today's, there were two kings up in, in, the, in the northern kingdom, up in Israel. Right? You had Pekah, the king of Israel, and then you had Rezin, the king of Syria. They had created an unholy alliance. Why? Because you had the Assyrians out here who were just running rampant over the region, just conquering everybody. And the northern kingdom, Israel, was frightened. And so they thought, well, let's, let's unite together with Syria to go up against Assyria. And they tried to bring Judah, the southern kingdom, in with them. But King Ahaz resisted that. He did not want to, to do that. But likewise... He didn't want to be invaded by Assyria either. So in his own strategic wisdom, King Ahaz takes it upon himself to come up with a, how in the world might we protect ourselves not only from Assyria, but also now from the northern kingdom in Syria, that unholy alliance, because they're now, now they're mad and they're marching down toward us as well. What does he do? He forms an alliance with Assyria. What better way than to keep Assyria from attacking me than to form an alliance with him? And what better way to defeat this enemy that has united because they fear Assyria than to unite together with Assyria as well? The problem with that is God had told his kings not to form unholy alliances with pagan nations. Because why? They would draw his children away from him into pagan idolatry. They would drift away from the God who, who had saved them and lead them astray. So God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says to him, listen, they're coming. It's God's judgment. We, we, you already know that this is coming. But God is going to preserve a remnant. God has a plan. He, says, he tells King Ahaz, just, you know, pick a sign, any sign. I'll show you anything you want to prove to you that the two kings of the north, that, that God's in control. Ahaz won't ask for a sign. Why? He doesn't believe God. He doesn't believe God is able. He's taking it upon himself. He's got his own plan, his own strategy. I don't need God. I've got Assyria. I'm going to do things. Well, I, I got this under control. And so God says, most surprisingly, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Here's the sign. A sign that I'm going to do what I want to do in spite of you, Ahaz. A virgin will bear a son. There's the surprising word of hope. A backdrop of desolation and destruction. Judgment is coming. There is a word of hope that God gives to Ahab. Now, Ahab doesn't believe, Ahaz, Ahaz doesn't believe it, but the word of hope is he will preserve a remnant. He will preserve the line of David, right? King Ahaz is a, is a descendant of King David. He's going to preserve the, the kingship of King David, and he's going to do it in a most unusual way, a virgin bearing a child. Now, lest, again, the familiarity with that story, a virgin, by definition, cannot bear a son cannot bear a child. So again, a word of hope in a most surprising way. God's trying to show Ahaz, don't look to yourself, don't trust in yourself, look to me. I have a plan. I'm executing my plan perfectly. 
Trust me, not yourself, Ahaz, not Assyria. Well, as we come to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, there's another prophecy here. And again, there's a backdrop of destruction. There's a backdrop of desolation. As we come to Isaiah chapter 9, Israel, they have drifted away from God. They've drifted away from him to other idols. And now judgment is on the way. In fact, if you go up a verse, chapter 8, verse 22, you see Isaiah speaking of gloom and darkness. Chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The people are in gloom. They're in great darkness because of their idolatry, because they're drift away from the Lord. They are in a time of tremendous strife. There's that backdrop of destruction and desolation again. So what's God's answer going to be? It's going to be a most surprising thing as well. A message of hope. Chapter 9, verse 6. Here's the hope. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he, that child, that son, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see? A backdrop of desolation, a word of hope, but that hope is not what's expected. A child in whom all of our hopes will be pinned. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing to help us to ponder, if you will, to ponder the glory and the greatness of Christ on display in this passage. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We confess to you, Father, that much like Israel here in this passage, our days also can be marked by gloom and despair and darkness and strife. On a personal level, in our souls, in our families, in our finances, with our physical health. Lord, we all know what it is to live in darkness, in gloom, and in despair. And into that, Father, you bring a remarkable word of hope to us today. And the hope centers upon a person, a child. A child that we know is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we come today and we confess our unbelief. We confess, we, we would like to believe we're better than King Ahaz. We would like to believe, Father, that we would never, ever turn away from you and your one means of grace, Jesus Christ, to another wisdom. But, Father, we do. And we do that in so many ways. We repent. And, Father, we return to you. We return to you, our King. And we ask you to show us how Christ is sufficient for our every darkness, for our every sorrow, for our every gloom. That today, Father, as we enter into another Christmas week, that, Father, our hearts would be filled with joy in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Again, we've got to feel the weight of the backdrop here, the weight of the backdrop of the urgency, the desolation, the gloom. Chapter 8, last sentence, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now we transition straight into chapter 9 and it's almost like 
All night long, there's been darkness. And then the sun comes up, the sun rises. That's kind of what chapter 9 is. Chapter 9 is the sun rising out of the darkness, sun rising up, shining light. And it's a stunning reality that in light of what God has already ordained and said, judgment is coming. They're coming. It's going to be bad. But there's the promise of a new creation, a new reality, a reversal that will come about. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. The title of the message is, is entitled to us, for to us a child is born, because that is the hope. This child is the sun rising. This child is the one who drives away the gloom and the despair and the sorrow. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning thinking about this child that Isaiah speaks of and the great blessing that he is upon the life of a believer. But before we do that, we need to notice the dramatic reversal that Isaiah is painting a picture of here in verses 1 through 3. We might say verses 1 through 3 are the promised blessings that flow from the child, the promised blessings that flow from Christ, the promised blessings that flow from Christmas. And I want us to think in terms of the, the blessings of Christmas, and I want us to think of the source of the blessings of Christmas. First, the blessings of that first Christmas. What does verse 1 say? There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. That's just one verse away from what we just saw. She will be thrust into thick darkness, chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, and the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There are at least three blessings here that Isaiah is bringing to the people of God from God himself. And the first one is simply glory in place of gloom. Glory in place of gloom. That's what we see there in verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And notice he says, in the former time, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The contempt of the former time upon that, that region will be swallowed up in the glory of a future time. It will begin, notice, at the very spot where judgment fell. The Assyrian invaders would have first struck at the locations we see here, Zebulun and Naphtali, across the Jordan. That would have been when the Assyrians come and attack. They, they turn on Judah. Judah thought that they were in alliance with them. No, Assyrians, they just don't work that way. It was all a ploy. The Assyrians turn, and they come, and they strike at Zebulun and Naphtali. And yet that very place where the Assyrians struck, are the very place where in Jesus' public ministry, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, keeping those two locations in mind. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. This is right after his, his baptism, right after his temptation. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, that's Jesus, withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of 
Zebulun and Naphtali. That's where the ministry of Jesus' ministry begins. And whereas Ahaz, the king and heir of David's throne, was a failure in Isaiah's day, and through his failure he brought judgment upon his people, Jesus, the greater David, was obedient. And through him, though Ahaz brought judgment upon those locations, Jesus, those same locations, will bring blessing. Again, it's not accidental that Matthew quotes Isaiah or, or brings in those locations that are prophesied there in Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew is helping us to see that baby that he's talking about is going to bring blessing to the, It's Christ. It's him. So there's glory instead of gloom, the glory of Christ. Secondly, there's light in the place of darkness. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them... Light has shone. Darkness was how chapter 8 ended, Isaiah chapter 8. It ended with darkness. They will be thrust into deep, thick darkness. But, says Isaiah, the light of the world will come. The light of the world will come and shine in the darkness and drive the darkness out. The darkness, John says, will not overcome it. One day, when Christ comes, there will be light instead of darkness. So we're just picking up on the reversal here. Glory, not gloom. Light, not darkness. And then there's another, a third blessing. Celebration instead of sorrow. Thirdly, he says, again, verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So they were in anguish. They were in sorrow. But verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 9, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, sorrow and anguish was what filled the people in Isaiah's day because of the coming judgment. They were fearful, there was sorrow, they were grief-stricken, there was strife. They were fearful. But with the promise of hope in this child, there will, there's a, a promise of a reversal. Celebration, not sorrow. Joy, not anguish. This will characterize the people of God when the child comes. And isn't that exactly what the angel told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? We read it this morning in our prayer time. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Good news of great joy. Cover to Life Church, I want to ask you to do what I have to do. This is the promise of the coming Christ. Glory, not gloom. Celebration, not sorrow. Light, not darkness. Do those realities resonate in your heart this morning? Do they? As you pause to take inventory of your heart, we understand Israel's fearfulness. We understand the grief. We understand the weight of darkness. We understand the weight of drifting away from God. And the con but does it resonate in our hearts? The reversal that comes through Christ. Glory filling your vision. 
Yes, we're surrounded by gloom and drab and all kinds of things in the world around us. Dreary realities. But it's the glory of Christ that fills our souls. Light shining into the darkness, giving you hope. Light in the midst of your spiritual struggles, in the midst of your family struggles, in the, the midst of your health issues. Is the light of Christ sufficient in your soul? And joy, not anguish, celebration, not sorrow. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of joy. Joy is a battle. We would love to say it just comes inherent. No, it's inherent in the person and work of Christ, but it's a daily battle for that. Does it, as you take inventory of your heart this morning, can you honestly say that it's there? We pray that it should be. It is. But for some, maybe you're left wondering, I hear you. But right now, I know nothing of those realities. Right now, I don't even know where I would find joy and light and glory with all that I've got going on in my life. The struggles spiritually. The struggle I have with my health, with my family, my schedule, my finances, my job, my career. You fill in the blank, whatever applies to you. I want those things, and I know I should have those things, but I don't, and I don't know where to turn. Well, that brings us to the second point, the source of God's blessings, the source of these blessings of reversal, and it's in the child, the God child, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah writes, for, for, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And what Isaiah does here is, some 600, 700 years before the birth of Christ, he brings us to the nativity. Isaiah brings us around the manger, looking at the Christ child. And if you can kind of picture in your head, and again, you're picturing here. Isaiah's off in the corner over here. And he's whispering to us. He's commentating from God himself. As we look at Mary, as we look at Joseph, as we look at the babe in the manger, the prophet Isaiah is whispering to us, quietly explaining to us the significance of this event. Explaining to us why this baby makes all the difference in the world. Glory, not gloom. Light, not darkness. Celebration, not sorrow. And Isaiah says, the pursuit of those things has everything to do with Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with, number one, what this child is going to do. And number two, who this child is. This is what Isaiah is speaking to us this morning who maybe are filled with gloom and darkness and sorrow. Through this child, pondering what this child will do and who this child is, brings the blessing of glory, of light, and celebration. So, what does he tell us this child will do? That's the first thing here. He tells us that these blessings are a result of what this child will do. And he tells us in verse 6, 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What does that mean? It means he's the king. It means he will reign. That this is God's forever universal king. Let's put this in context. This is great news for Judah because they have a horrible king, King Ahaz. A king who has led them into an unholy alliance. A king who has led them away from the one true God. They now, through this child, have a king, the right king, God's king, God's universal king, who is also, quote, Emmanuel, God with us. He brings us to God. It's good news for Judah. It's good news for us. Because we, in our own generation, it's been true of every generation, have leaders and political leaders who make promises and break those. We've never had a good king. There's none who can compare to Christ. He's solitary in his glory and in his greatness and in his kingship and in his rule. But there's more to his reign as king. Look at verse 7. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this great and glorious God's universal king, he's going to rule over God's kingdom, and that kingdom will never end. That kingdom will never crumble. There will never be an opponent. There will never be a force who will come up against King Jesus and the kingdom of God and be able to defeat it. No military conquest, no, no spiritual battle. You combine all the forces of this world throughout the centuries and put them together into one huge team to go up against King Jesus and his kingdom. And King Jesus leaves a greasy spot geographically on the map over this. None can contend. And the reign of Jesus, is, it's, it's indestructible, it's unstoppable, it's triumphant. On the throne of David, the text says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, verse 7, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. To establish it and to uphold it. Meaning what? It's not going anywhere. It's, this is the kingdom and this is the king. And nothing can thwart God's eternal plans and purposes that are before the foundation of the world that we were first introduced to in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, with the seed of the woman who's going to come and conquer the seed of the serpent. This king will build his church. He will fulfill the Father's purposes. And it will last throughout the ages. We can insert here, we've spent the bulk of 2018 studying the book of Revelation. What's Revelation about? Ultimately, it's about the triumph of the king, the triumph of Christ. Over and over, what's been the message? What, in every cycle we've looked at of, uh, of the seal judgments, of the, the trumpet judgment, of the bowl judgments, of, of the great dragon, of the great... Uh, ambassadors of the dragon, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land, who unite together against Jesus Christ, and they bring an all-out attack on him. What's the message of Revelation? We haven't got to the complete end yet, but I think we know well enough. They're all dead. They're all gone. 
They cannot conquer King Jesus. The Lamb will win. Jesus Christ triumphs. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now Christ's kingdom is not a political, it's not a military kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not set up geographically on a map. Christ's kingdom rules in the hearts of his people. Christ conquers his rebel enemies through his life, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, and by the grace of God, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, conquers a heart and places King Jesus on the throne to rule and to reign forever so that a true believer will love King Jesus with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. So, glory, not gloom, light, not darkness, joy, not anguish. Those are ours as at a heart level. Not an intellectual level, a heart level. Our hearts treasure Jesus Christ. We see that in Him is the wisdom of God. In Him is everything God promised to us, and we run to Him. We forsake everything that keeps us from him in repentance. We run, we profess faith in him, and we bend the knee of our hearts to him. Not just one time, but throughout our lives, day in and day out. And we make him the king and ruler of all in our lives. The blessings of glory, light, and celebration are the result of what this child will do. He's going to conquer. He's going to be the king. Secondly, Isaiah points us that these blessings, if you will, are the result of who this child is. Not only what he'll do, but who this child is. And he gives us four titles. You can pick them up there in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what will he do? The government shall be upon his shoulder. And who will he be? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's take those one at a time. Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? It means he'll be endowed with supernatural wisdom. Isn't that what you look for in a counselor? When you go to a counselor, you need wisdom. You need guidance. Why? Because I myself am inadequate. I myself, I think I know everything. I think I know what's right. I think I know even what everybody else should be doing until God humbles me and brings me to a place. Maybe my perspective is wrong. Maybe my thoughts are wrong. I need someone who wisely sees things rightly, who understands things from a, a perspective that I might not have. Christ as the wonderful counselor means it speaks of his wisdom. And contextually, the point is obvious. Judah has King Ahaz. Is he a wise man? No. Where has he turned in this time of crisis? He's taken upon himself. King Ahaz says, hmm, I've got Israel and Syria up here. And they're mad at me because I wouldn't unite forces against them. I got Assyria over here. 
All right, let me think about this. Let me think about this. What can I do? What can I do? I don't, I don't want to be destroyed. What can I do? All right. Maybe if I unite with Assyria, maybe if I get on, because they're going to defeat everybody anyway. If I can be on their team, well, then together we can take care of these guys to the north, and then I don't have to worry about them defeating me. That was Ahaz's wisdom. That was from Ahaz's perspective. That sounds right. That sounds good. That's what a wise, prudent king would do. Bad news. Ahaz is not wise. God had said, don't make an unholy alliance. Not with Syria, not with Assyria, in order to be spared from the judgment to come. God has already announced judgment is coming. You uniting with whoever you want to is not going to stop that. You're not going to stop the hand of Almighty God. And secondly, I promise that even in the judgment, I have a plan to preserve a remnant, to preserve the line of, the, of David. Ahaz, just simply, God appreciate it, but... I don't need, a, I don't need a, a symbol from you. I don't need a sign from you. I know what I'm going to do. His human wisdom made him think he was smarter than God. Isaiah comes to him. Isaiah comes to him and brings the word of the Lord. And what does Ahaz do? Oh, Isaiah, you're no military leader. You're no conquering force. You're just a prophet. You don't know anything about warfare. You don't know anything about war political strategy. You don't know anything about military alliance. Isaiah, you're just a prophet. I'm a king. I've been down this road before. I have experience in warfare. It's going to be my way. And what happened? Assyria turned on him. But this child, who's going to be born. It's different from Ahaz. It's different from every one of us. He is the wonderful counselor. He's possessed by spiritual wisdom. And that's in the midst of gloom, in the midst of anguish, in the midst of darkness. That's where you find glory. That's where you found joy. And that's where you find hope. There is one who can wisely make sense of all the confusion. There is one you can go to, and it is God's answer to your every need, and it is a person. It is Christ Jesus who is endowed with supernatural God's own wisdom. Whatever the situation, run to Jesus. He is sufficient for everything. Doesn't that begin to well up? a sense of glory, a sense of light, a sense of hope, a sense of celebration. There is an answer. It may not be what you think. Maybe we're a lot like King Ahaz. Oh, Jake, you're just a, it's your job. To, we expect you to stay up there, stand up there on a Sunday and say, run to Jesus. But you don't know what I'm going through. Isaiah's message is Christ is the wonderful counselor. You run to him. Isaiah also says he's the mighty God. The mighty God. He's speaking there mighty of omnipotence. Almighty power. In fact, John will open up his gospel in John chapter 1, speaking about this child, this baby. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. All the power of God that we see from the opening page of the Bible, Genesis 1, God speaks, let there be light, and boom, that big fireball that we can't even look directly into, God creates it, it comes flowing from him, and it comes into existence. That is omnipotent power, the likes of which cannot be manipulated, cannot be manufactured, cannot be repeated, it's one of a kind, only someone who is almighty can do that. And when this child is born, he's not just like God, he is God endowed with this omnipotent power. Omnipotent power. And this is the great mystery of Christmas. You look at that baby in the manger, and that baby has the power right then in that very moment to speak and bring everything to existence. That baby is endowed with power us clothed in humanity, but that he is God and has the power in the arms of his mama to do anything he wants to do. And yet that one, that one is going to walk the streets of Jerusalem, take the most brutal beating strips of flesh hanging from his body. He's going to be lied to. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to go through a judicial system that's a complete mockery of justice. And he's going to allow, yes, I said allow, his body to hang from a cross where he will die when at any given moment this mighty God could speak and bring it all to an end. But why is he there? This is God's plan. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world. First revealed to Adam and Eve. Revealed through all the Old Testament narratives. Revealed in Isaiah chapter 7. Revealed in Isaiah chapter 9. As he hangs there, mighty God. He's fulfilling God's own purposes. We just sang a song a moment ago. It was a song I've been... Just meditating on myself, a song that maybe it's been a while that we've sung, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And there's a line in there that speaks to our mighty God. We sing it, strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and my shield. Strong deliverer. And there's the surprising thing about this. This strong deliverer puts that mighty strength behind him so that he can go to the cross and die the death we all deserve to die. Christ is mighty to save. He has all the strength you need for salvation to win a soul and to conquer a soul from the enemy and to bring it unto him. He has all the strength you need for whatever you're going through. Personally, spiritually, health-wise, in all your weakness, in all your failures, and every trial, this revelation of Christ as mighty God means there is nothing you're going through that's bigger than He is. Run to Him. He's endowed with wisdom, and He is endowed with omnipotent power. <laughs> My goodness, this baby, run to Him. 
Glory, not gloom. Celebration, not sorrow. Light, not darkness. Why? Because of who this child is. And that's not him. He's called next the everlasting father. Now that can be somewhat puzzling for the mere fact that he's the son sent by the father. So is Isaiah misspeaking here? Is he identifying the son as the father? What's going on here? No, the idea here is in the Old Testament, kings were called fathers. Kings were called fathers. They were spiritual fathers, political fathers, military fathers over the people that they ruled. They, they were looked upon as fathers, which is why even in the Ten Commandments, the command to honor your father and mother, as we continue reading through the Bible, we come to understand that doesn't just mean your parents. That means those in authority over you, your leaders, which we see fleshed out in, in Jesus' ministry, in Paul's ministry, in Romans. Uh, those who are in political and spiritual leadership over you were considered your fathers. And now this child, Jesus Christ, is called the everlasting father, meaning what? He's the ruler over his people. He's the king. This child, this baby right here, this, this tall, this wide, few, few pounds, few ounces, is your everlasting father, your eternal king. And that's why we read in verse 7 of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then he's the Prince of Peace. What a wonderful word to a people who are facing being conquered by their enemies. They have a wicked king. They have a wicked nation who's coming to attack them. It's God's judgment, and yet he holds out this glimmer of hope. There is a prince of peace. And the New Testament speaks of this aspect of who Jesus is all throughout it. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The angel said about the coming of Jesus, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says to his own disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, on the night of his arrest, peace I leave you with. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives to you, but I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because peace, I give you peace. Or in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, speaking of Christ, He Himself is our peace. We, see, we can't talk about peace, and we can't pursue peace without pursuing Christ, without going after Him. The two are tied together. Colossians 1.20, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace, not just in a general sense, peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, through Christ. And then the author of Hebrews sums up the book, he closes it out 
with these words, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. You see how he's tying it. The God of peace through the shepherd. Who's that? Christ. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah is very clear. In a world of strife, there is a hope of peace. But not just because we're going to fight for it. Not just because we want it to be so. Not just because we preach to our heart, peace, peace, peace. And Jesus warns where there may not be any peace. Why? Why would there not be peace? Because peace is through a person. It's through Christ. And this child would be the one to bring peace. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father, king, ruler, monarch. And he's a righteous ruler. And prince of peace. That's who this child is, and that's what he's accomplished for you. Question. What exactly are you going through this morning for which he's not enough? What exactly in your life, your, your physical health, your family situation, your exhaustion, your finances, your own sin, your struggles, what is so big to you that it's too big for him? The one in whom is perfect wisdom, omnipotent power, a righteous monarch, and who is in him peace. It is a reality that fear often strikes at our hearts because of various things. But Isaiah's message for to us in the midst of our fear, a child is born. A child, whoa, 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 whoa. Man, you don't know, you don't know how fearful I am. You don't know how overwhelming, you don't know how irritated I am. You don't know how sinful I am. You don't know how angry I am. You don't know how, how undone I am. You don't know how big I've failed. To all of us, Isaiah says, from God himself, a child is born. And this one, who surpasses our every understanding, our every thought, is sufficient for our every need. So, what are you doing with your own struggle? Your own darkness? Your own gloom? your own sorrow. Run to the child. Run to Christ. Now there's just a couple things as we close. The first one, Isaiah is clear. All of this hinges upon a person. Please, we cannot afford to walk out of here kind of pulling up our bootstraps and saying, well, he's, I, I just heard I can have peace. I can have joy. I can have wisdom. I'm going to go do that this week. There was a disconnect somewhere. We can have those things, but it's tied to a person. The one who is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. Look at those titles in your Bible. I asked you to keep your Bible open. Look at them on the page. That's who our Christ is. And the prophet is inviting us as we look at this one, to take inventory of our hearts, take inventory of our situation, take inventory of our need, and say, which aspect of this, 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Which aspect is he not enough to meet your need? Oh, there's, there, there's no aspect. So run to him. Run, draw near to your king. He is all sufficient. He is able. He is everything. The biggest shame in going through this Christmas season is to live as though Jesus is the reason for the season and to post it all over our Facebook social media pages and it's all about Jesus. And yet we're walking in gloom and darkness and sorrow. We must believe who Christ is. This morning, maybe you need to run to him for the first time. To run to Jesus, there's two things that happens. One, you're running because you believe, but there's also, I'm running to him because I'm forsaking all else. All other wisdom, all other might, all other rulers, all other methods of peace. I'm forsaking all of them because in Christ, they're all there. In repentance. Repentance is not just I'm sorry. Repentance is I'm forsaking everything else for this person. I'm coming to this person, making him all. And maybe this morning, that's where it needs to begin. You run to him. God has made the way for you to run to him through Christ Jesus upon the cross. Christ Jesus dying for your sins, taking the penalty you deserve, taking on the wrath of God himself so that your sins might be forgiven, so that you can go to him. This morning, pray for grace if that's you. Ask God to give you everything you need to believe, to repent, to run to Jesus. And the second thing is what I talked about with the kids this morning. Look at how verse 7, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9, yes, verse 7 closes. The prophecy ends about Jesus with a word of declaration from God himself. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the Old Testament way of saying, God saying the deliverance I'm going to bring, it's all by grace not of works, lest any man should boast. It's interesting, God says to his people here, I'm laying out who your hope is in, it's in the, the child, it's in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, now you go out and do something, perform these tasks. No, he says, this is who salvation will be through. And I, ever since the foundation of the world, have been and will continue to do everything that's necessary for this sufficient all-sufficient Savior to be provided for you. I will do it all. And we can look at the nativity and say he's done it. Glory to God in the highest. Praise God. It is overwhelming just to pause and look back over redemptive history. Go back to Genesis 1 and read all the way up to the nativity and just, just allow your mind to think of how many people lived in those days and, and how many encounters and adventures and at any moment, any one thing could have thrown the whole plan of redemption off track. I say that loosely because the point is, no. In, the, in his zeal, the Lord of hosts was constantly at work, <laughs> sovereignly preserving it, that in the fullness of time for his glory, Christ Jesus would come. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And for you and I, he's done it. And the zeal of the Lord will do what we've seen in the book of Revelation. We'll do what he has said. Christ Jesus will come again. And that's our hope. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Beloved, he's enough. Run to him.